You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation. Brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com. And be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. My guest today is Simran Jeet Singh, who's the executive director of the Aspen Institute's Program on Religion and Society. He is a Soros Equality Fellow with the Open Society Foundations, Senior Advisor on Equity and Inclusion for YSC Consulting, and a visiting professor at Union Theological Seminary. He's got a really good new book. It's called The Light We Give, How Sick Wisdom Can Transform Your Life. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is getting the yes and. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow is just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the Simrakjit Singh, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Uh, you write in the very first line in the introduction to your beautiful book, uh, The Light We Give, quote, I was 11 the first time someone called me a terrorist, end quote. And this entire book in many ways grapples with how one responds to words and the thoughts behind words like that, right? That's right. Yeah, and, and not just not just the thoughts and the words, but also... Uh, other people's perceptions of you. And I, mm. I think a big part of my childhood and upbringing in Texas, um, I had to learn, you know, what, what do you do when, when your perception of yourself uh, is at odds with how other people see you? You know, I had a turban and brown skin and facial hair, and they, they often in Texas saw me as the enemy. Uh, and I saw myself as, as a good person, or at least someone who is trying to be. And so, yeah, it's, it's been a lifelong journey for me in trying to make sense of, of that friction and, and trying to figure out how to, how to live in a world where, where people see all of us in different ways and, and we have to learn how to deal with that. Uh, there's a line also early in the book that you write, uh, sick wisdom offers a necessary balm in the age of daily provocation. 
Uh, and, you know, we're sitting here and the courts have just overturned Roe v. Wade and it feels like we get that stuff. It does feel like we get that stuff daily. So t- talk to me about <laughs> we need the bomb. How do we get the bomb? Well, well, first of all, you have to be you have to be careful when you're talking to someone who wears a turban. I'm I'm not supposed to say bomb. Yeah, <laughs> good point. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, appreciate that. You know, I, it, it's it's such a it's such an interesting thing about about life because you and I can be sitting here uh, lamenting about the state of our world and and all the challenges we face every day. And you know, if it's not Roe v. Wade one day, it's uh, um, you know a black man killed on the streets by the cops, or it's um, you know, the pandemic that's taking lives of, of innocent people all over the world. I mean, there's, there's so much that we deal with every day. And part of the challenge, I think, is learning to find happiness within that, recognizing that, you know, these are not momentary challenges. This is, this is what life is, and, and nobody's mm-hmm. life is, is perfect. Uh, and we all face our own challenges. And so what, what do you do to prepare yourself? Uh, for these moments that that we'll encounter each of us in our own way, and so for me, that's that's a challenge that you know has really been um, focused in on my experiences with racism. Uh, but of course, you know, I'm, I'm I'm not just that. I I have kids. I live in New York City. I you know all sorts of other challenges that come come in my life. My my basketball team isn't very good right now, and so that's that's been a struggle for me. And so so how do we find happiness uh, when life isn't perfect? I, I think that's that's something that that's a challenge for each of us every day. You, you tell a story uh, it, early in the book too about uh, an encounter you had on the streets of New York with an elderly elderly white woman who fell. Can you recount that as an as an example? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it was it was somewhat of a surprise to me because when I moved from Texas to New York, I, I really thought and hoped that uh, that racism was over for me, that I'd never have to deal with it again. And, yeah. and pretty soon after moving to New York, um, I think it was less than a month since moving there, um, I was walking outside my apartment and, and a woman, an elderly woman fell down uh, on the street uh, which is, you know, it's New York. No one's, no one's stopping for you. Right. And so, and so I, I rushed over to go help her, you know, just not, not a big deal. Just, you know, a, a, a minor act of, uh, kindness, I guess you could say, I think mm-hmm. what anyone would do. And I reached my hand out to her to help her up. And, and she reached her hand out to receive my help. And then she looked up and saw my face and my turban. And then she screamed and she told me to go back to where I came from. And, and I wasn't sure what to do in that moment. I mean, I had encountered uh, incidents like this all throughout my life, but this this was a little different, right? Here's a woman who needed my help, um, and she was unwilling to take it because of how I looked. And, and I realized that this is the story of racism in America, that we are unwilling to live alongside and receive help from others, even if it's to our own detriment. And so in, in the end, I ended up, you know, I, I figured out a way to help her without her having to touch me uh, or, or take my help. I, I called over some onlookers uh, who were on the, on the sidewalk uh, and, and in New York, you know, it's not, it's not easy to get people's attention, right. uh, but I was able to get them to come over and help her up. And, and ultimately, you know, the, the lesson for me in this moment was there are ways that we can, that we can care for one another uh, even even when others don't care for us, and so I, I walked away feeling proud of of my response, even though I didn't love 
you know, the way that she saw me and, and what she felt about me. I I was reading, I read your book and then uh, got on a flight, um, a long flight. And a woman sat down next to me with a little baby who proceeded to scream for like two hours. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought about like, I, I had the, this moment and I think it was influenced by reading this book because, you know, I, I had gone through that experience when my kids were little and I literally decided, okay, what can I do in this moment? Like, you know, to take care of myself, I was thinking as well. And I turned to her, I said, you do not need to apologize. If the baby kicks me, you don't need to say you're sorry. Like I've been through this stuff before. Mm. And it was just like, and, and everyone was being cool around her as well. Um, and I think, you know, it's very hard in those moments, not to just go to your lizard brain. Uh, you really have to sort of dig down to, you know, find the gratitude in a moment to reach out to someone, whether it's a, a small, that was a very small gesture, but I think it was meaningful to her. Yeah. I, I love that. And I think, you know, what, what, I, what I'm hearing you say, and I, I think this is where I'd love for all of us to start going uh, culturally and individually uh, is, is it's actually a really simple step, right? Like all, all you really did in that moment um, was, was observe um this woman's experience and, and to think a little bit more deeply about how, how you might connect with it, right? You, you put yourself in her shoes and just said, mm -hmm. Oh, this is probably, this is probably tough for her. Let me, let me show her a little compassion. And, you know, for you, probably, it probably doesn't change your life or even your experience on the airplane. Uh, but for this woman and her child, I, I mean, I've been in those situations where people have shown me that kind of grace and it totally changes it totally changes not just the experience on the flight, but that can change your day. That can change your week. And it can also change how you how you start seeing and interacting with other people. So I, I love the example because these are these are the little building blocks that we can all that we can all experience if we're just willing to to engage a little bit more deeply with one another. Yeah, and your I mean, your experiences in this country are, are not minor, especially in the wake of 9-11. And we had uh, Valerie Kaur on the podcast to talk about her book, See No Stranger. And she spoke about the tragedies that were afflicted upon the sick community after 9-11. And you had, you, you were in uh, grade school, high school? In high school. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so, I mean, that had to be a terrifying time in your life in this country. Yeah. You know, it was, I mean, it was, it was a terrifying time for me as a kid um especially looking looking the way that i do uh it was a terrifying time for our community and other communities who were uh seen seen as the enemy whether it was because of the religion they belonged to or what skin color they had or if you know little markers like facial hair became racialized too yeah so i mean it was it was terrifying for for all of these folks but i mean i, I also think it was a terrifying time for everyone uh, in this country as, as we are feeling, I think, at least for the first time in my lifetime, uh, feeling like we are vulnerable uh, on, on our own soil, right? And that's mm -hmm. not something that we in America experience often. Um, you know, we usually we, we engage in war and violence elsewhere. Um, and so, you know, this, this feeling of fear that has become so um, ingrained in our cultural experience here in the States, especially since 9-11, you know, the, the war on terror, uh, mm. it, it really became a, um, a household phrase that, you know, we're, we're constantly thinking about potential violence and, and we're changing our behaviors. And, and to me, one of the, uh, 
one of the lessons that I draw from my tradition and, and try to live by is uh, how do we get to a point where we can get beyond fear? You know, we, we talk about this concept of, of nidpo, uh without fear. And we say, well, if, if God, if the divine is without fear, uh, then what would it take for us to be like that too? And, and the one, the one teaching that I, that I love that I'll share with you uh, comes from one of the Sikh gurus and I write about this in the book, particular to to when I when I travel on an airplane, and try and figure out how to comport myself. Mm. Uh, he says the the truly wise person is someone who doesn't feel fear and also doesn't inspire fear. He doesn't cause other people to feel fear, and and I try and live by that every day. And it's it's really hard because part of that has to do with something I can't control, right? Like other people's perceptions of me. Right. Uh, but some of that you, you can control. And so really trying to engage in a daily practice where you're not constantly drawn into fear and, and living out of fear and, and therefore sucking the joy out of your own life and also ensuring that you are doing the same for other people around you. I, I think that's a, it's a really powerful uh, way to live if you can, if you can try it. Um. I have a number of uh, friends who are very committed uh, social activists. Um, and the thing that amazes me about all of them is how much they embrace humor. I mean, because there's, there's this sort of stereotype, right. Of uh, Especially among sort of the, the woke left uh, of, of them just having zero, zero sense of humor. And I can attest to that sometimes in second city that it's sometimes it's true. Um, but you, you write in the book a lot about, how humor is is a, a mechanism and a tool that you use uh, in in your daily life. Yeah, I mean, I, I part of what I try and do in the book, and and you know, it's it's not as easy as it sounds, but it, I'm, maybe in some ways it is. I I just try to be real, mm. uh, and and I try to live that way, and I try to write that way. Um, but yeah, hu- humor is and has been always um, a really um, important part of, of my personality. Um, I'm actually hoping that this podcast is my, my launching pad for a, for a stand-up career, uh, that, that, I, that I've long dreamed of. Um, it's, it is, it is, I think for a lot of us who experience, uh, difficulty, especially coming from the margins of society, um, humor, humor, at least for me, functions, as a coping mechanism, right? Like, how do you how do you live in a world where there's so much serious um, there's so much serious difficulty, and and we're trying to tackle it, and and these problems are real, and people are really suffering, and at the same time, if if you get so drawn into it that you that you're unable to see the goodness in life, like that that is soul sucking, that's exhausting, and it's not sustainable. And so for me, humor, humor has been a vehicle for uh, finding lightness in, in, in the dark, right? Like yeah. lightness in, in both senses of the word, like the levity is really important to me. And also what we learn in our, in our tradition, in our faith is um, if, if you're not enjoying life while you're here, then what's the point? And so it, it very much is a, a, a philosophy that tries to give you the ability to affect change in a positive way, to serve other people, to live, to live a good life and also to enjoy it while you're doing it. And that's, that's not an easy balance to strike, but humor, at least for me, has been a tool that, that real, that really helps in that regard. 
Yeah, I, I don't I don't know who actually said this. It's a lot of people get get it credited with the quote, which is the shortest distance between two people is a shared laugh. And a lot of your book is about connectedness. Um, and, you know, we know this from like the Grant study at Harvard, which proved, you know, they studied men for over 80 years and they showed that the, the one thing uh, that um, uh, contributed to happiness uh, was relationships. Um, so talk to us a bit about what connectedness means in your tradition and then how you express it in the world. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I love the quite, I was actually just talking to a, to a friend and, and scholar of early Christianity, because these are, these are, these are the kind of people I hang out with. Yeah. Um, but I, I was talking to her and she, she and I were, were just, we're just sharing the experience of how simple this idea is. And I was sharing with her that, you know, my, my girls are young. Um, they're both, they're both under 10 and, and they understand this concept that, that so many of us struggle with, which is we are all part of one big human family. And, and when I say it, like it's, it's, I kind of roll my eyes because it's, uh, it's, it's very cliche, right? It's, it's it, and like anyone can get it. But what we learn in our tradition is that the, the real trick of life is learning to actually feel that. Like, how do you, how do you take this philosophical idea and then put it into your daily practice so that when you see someone walking down the street or when you when you're sitting in front of a a teacher in your classroom or when you're sitting at work alongside your colleague like how do you how do you get to a point where you actually see the divinity and the dignity in everyone that you meet and that is again like easy easy and Easy in speech, really difficult in practice. And, and I think it's especially difficult because it runs counter to, to so much of what we're taught in society, right? Like socially, we're taught that, you know, you got to find the people who are better. Who's going to help you get to where you want to be, right? Like there's so many elements of supremacist thinking uh, where we are constantly discriminating over who deserves our respect and who doesn't. And so for me, this, this teaching in our tradition, what we call ikongar, which is the first thing we learn as six, the first term in our scripture, the first concept we learn, um, that ultimately everything in this world is interconnected. I, I don't think you have to be a, you know, religious person to, to buy into this belief. I mean, this is what uh, physics and astrophysics are finding scientifically, too, that we are all composed of the same material. And it all is interconnected. I mean, at, at an atomic level and subatomic level. And so what does it take for us to actually get to a point where we can see that and feel it and live by it so that we are, so that we are embracing the world and constantly feeling the connectedness and the love to it, as opposed to where we are right now, which is, I mean, just so painful and divisive, right? That's a, that's a different way of living that, that my Sikh faith really brings forward. And I think so. So I'm. I just finished reading a, a terrific book on um, complexity and paradoxes called "Both and Thinking," and it's a, a counter to either or thinking. And I feel like when you talk about evil not being a thing, like like when when we can say to ourselves, "No, I don't," I, you know, "I don't believe in that." I think that's exactly what that is. It's 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 integrating rather than creating a zero-sum game and again hard to do um and i think a lot of people 
would disagree with that. I happen to agree. I don't think evil. I think we all have good stuff and bad stuff in us and good moments and bad moments. But talk to us a little bit about that, that construct of evil and, and why you don't think it exists. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. I mean, I, I think so much of my view on this changed uh, in my early twenties. Um, mm. You know, I, I grew up in, I grew up in the Sikh tradition, but I was, I was socialized uh, here in the States, born and raised in Texas and, and pretty much everyone around me and culturally too, like, this is how we think, right. We think in binaries, we think of, especially when we're thinking on a, um, on an ideological level, right? Like there's, there's good and bad, there's heaven and hell, there's pure and polluted, there's um, evil and moral, there's heaven, and, oh, sorry, I said heaven and hell already. There's, mm-hmm. there's right and left, there's political, mm-hmm. like you could go political and say Republican and Democrat, and like everything is at odds with one another. And that's, that's how I saw the world, right? Like it was, it was very much a binary um, it's you, you, as you said, it's either, or you pick, you pick which side you're on and you just roll with it. Yeah. And, and, and one of the, one of the experiences that I had in my own maturation was, was starting to introspect and to recognize that, Hey, these categories that I'm putting the world into doesn't actually reflect my experience. Like I'm out here pointing at people as being good or bad. Uh, and, and when I look at myself, I'm like, oh, I am good in some ways and bad in other ways, right? Like I do the right things sometimes and I do the wrong things other times. Uh, I believe some things, uh, in this, in this line politically. And then I also share some characteristics with another side politically. And so just recognizing that complexity within myself helped me to understand that, you know what, these, these binaries that we create of understanding the world, they're not really they're not really true. They're oversimplifications that help us feel good about how we make sense of the world. But if we really want a true representation of what this world is, uh, we have to go beyond that and, and really grapple, I, I think, in a, in, a, in a way that's not easy uh, with, with these complexities and, and really learn to hold multiple truths at the same time. Right? My experience as a brown-skinned person in this country might be that racism is a real problem and it shows up every day and your experience might be different from mine and both can be true, right? Because we have our own experiences of the world. And I think learning to accept and learning to go beyond, I think what is our normative way of thinking here in the States, here in the West, that there's always one right answer that the scientific method means that there's, that, that there's one solution to every problem. I mean, that's, that's not actually true. Uh, there might be a solution that works better for you, but like there are different ways to, I mean, to, to peel an orange, right? Like you can use a knife, you can use your fingers. It does, one, one isn't the better, better than the other. So anyway, the, the, this was part of my own experience of uh, learning to uh, grapple with my own inner I, I guess paradox is the right word, right? Things that didn't yeah. seem like they were in alignment, but they were, they were actually true because I lived them and I knew them. So you're expressing these thoughts and writing these things down and putting them out into the world in a world right now that doesn't seem hospitable to any form of nuance or even, even this idea of reaching across an aisle. Are you get, do you get like, how much pushback do you get in your, in your, world when you talk about this stuff <laughs> um I, probably as much as anyone uh who tries yeah. 
And so the, the push black is plentiful and it comes uh, in all directions and in all forms. Um, right. And so, you know, there was a period in which uh, as I started to deal with it and it still bothers me. And I think it's part of how I've been conditioned. Probably it's racialized too, um, that right. I, I really care what people think about me. Um, and that probably has to do with, you know, it's for, for a long time in my life, that's been a matter of my own survival, right? Like it matters what people think. Um, but now I'm starting to see that um, the pushback will come regardless. You can't please everyone. And, and there's a lot of humility in this too, right? Like if you can recognize, and this has really helped me, recognizing that some of the greatest people in this world um, have not been liked, right? Like think about what happened to Jesus, right? Like not everybody no. loved him. Uh, but he was an incredible human being who was just trying to share a powerful message that would that would transform people's lives. And I, I'm not saying that I'm on the level of Jesus or anything like that. But it gives me if if I'm if he's at his station um, and he got the kind of pushback he did, then then a few you know ugly tweets and death threats you know don't don't need to don't need to bother me in, in the way that they have in the past. The the other thing I'll say is you know part of what I think has been really effective in, in my own storytelling is recognizing an opportunity in, in the unique experience that I have. And what I mean by that is uh, people haven't heard this story before, you know, the story of, of a sick growing up in America. Mm -hmm. um, it's not one that they have, um, that they've already made their assumptions about, or they, they've made their minds up on, right. They, they might be closed off to other kinds of, stories about racism or misogyny or homophobia or whatever. But, but in this case, there's a new opportunity to open people up. And, and so that to me is part of the work that I'm trying to do through the, through the personal storytelling. How do I, how do I tell you the story that you haven't heard before? And as I'm telling it, maybe I can offer you some lessons that I've learned along the way that could be, that could be useful in your own life too. Yeah. And one of the ways you do that or did that for me <clears throat> is uh, we were both soccer players like that. That was mm -hmm. my my identity as a young person was I am a soccer player. I, I was that's all I did. That's awesome. What position were you? Center forward. Uh, then then we're sworn enemies. I was I was sweeper. So oh, okay. oh, we are sworn enemies. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah that, well, I mean, and, and I, it's interesting. My experience, you had an injury that took you out. Um, for me, I, we've gone to state finals. We lost in the state finals. I was starting center forward for that game. And then um, the following summer, uh, I was going to be a senior in high school. Uh, I quit. And, I, and, and it was just I, like, I just didn't want to do it anymore. There, it was like, I was like, I'm not going to be a professional soccer player. I'm tired of this coach yelling at me. Um, and I want to find a different way to sort of express myself. And it actually ended up being one of those great quitting moments, I think, uh, for me, a valuable yeah. quitting moment. Um, but and I don't know how it would have felt if it got torn away from me like it did from you, because that wasn't a good experience, I don't think, for you. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't it wasn't a good experience. Um, but, you know, life life has its way of working out. And so in retrospect, um, I'm really grateful. I mean, there, there's still a I wonder what if uh, kind of feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think every, everyone has, has those moments in their lives. Like, like what if, what if it went through this sliding door instead, instead of that sliding door, right? right? Like that's, that's, that's certainly a part of it, but it was, I mean, it was incredibly painful, um, to, I mean, it, it was, it was my dream, right. And that's maybe what's different, uh, in our cases. I, I, 
lived and breathed soccer. It was all I wanted to do. My my future was tied up uh, in in my aspirations for professional soccer playing, and and to have that um, no longer be available to me was was brutal. And you know, one of one of the things I've been thinking about recently, and it's it's especially uh, poignant with the pandemic, is recognizing um, how how little we control, right? Like I had all these plans, and every day I have all these plans, right? Every day I'm scheduling meetings and my kids pick up and drop off and you know i have everything to a t and and a minor hiccup is 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 annoying right a five minute delay in any in any direction is 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 uh is frustrating to me and and then the pandemic hits and you're like oh you know what like i don't actually control any of this anything can happen at any right. time and and life is a little bit more uh precious in that way than, than i might realize so so the humility that comes with accepting that reality both both with regard to my soccer playing career and and with something like the pandemic i, I think there are some really useful life lessons if, if we're willing to look at them in that way yeah i think so you know one of the things about improvisation as as a practice is it requires you to be fiercely in the moment um so you can't be judging yourself you can't be judging others you can't be living in the past or living in the future you have to be paying attention to every word the person says across from you to, to their la the last word, which often we don't, because that could be carrying valuable information. And so many people show up, so many broken people show up in improv classes, I think in part because they find this of, of like, oh my God, whether I have anxiety or, or other things, this practice of just being in the moment is such a better way to exist than our constant sort of noisy, distracted selves. Um, and, and that's something you talk about uh, in the book quite a bit. Yeah, you know, I haven't I haven't thought about it with regard to humor, um, but I but I love that I love that example because I, I think it's absolutely true, and I think I think it is uh, an antidote to so much of what afflicts us right now. There, I mean, we are constantly uh, distracted. We're constantly looking either at the past and and what we wish had happened, or looking at the future and uh, what we hope to happen. And, and while both are, I think instructive and important um I, I think especially now in, in in the way that we've structured our society uh it's it's increasingly difficult to live in the moment um and and i think you know th there are all sorts of ways in which we already talk about that and you know i don't i don't need to belabor uh the importance of living in the present but i i think the the simple profound truth um is that if if ultimately we're looking for happiness uh, in our lives and we're constantly chasing it either through the past or the future, mm -hmm. uh, then, then we'll never, then we'll never catch it. Right. Like it's, those are in different times. And what we learn in, in our sick faith uh, is that this is the life you have. It's a gift. Be grateful for it and figure out how to enjoy it right now. And it's, again, it's, it's not rocket science, uh, but it is hard to apply in, in our day-to-day -day lives. And, and I think the only way, that we really can achieve that uh, is by making it a daily practice. What, what are you going to do today to appreciate what you have? What are you going to do today to make yourself happy, to, to enjoy what you have, to, to be grateful? And I think those simple practices, at least as I found in my life, and I, and I share this in the book, those really simple practices, which you can do at any age and you can do in any location and you can do at any time, they can, they can really transform your experience of the world where 
even if even if things are hard and even when life throws its challenges at you uh you can you can find happiness in those moments by practicing uh by, by creating a practice of living in the present yeah uh so in a moment we're going to ask you for a yes and story but before we do that there was a story you talk about when you went to harvard and th- this was quite eye-opening for me and made me think about your experience and others' experience, people who are othered and their, their experiences. Um, Cause you, you, you find out that they don't offer uh, sickism and you write in the book quote, I remember sitting on the steps outside the historic Widener library, my first week there and asking myself, what does it mean to be so marginalized that one remains outside the archive? End quote. That's powerful. That, 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 that I mean, you were outside the arc. I mean, the, Talk to us about that because I, I found that very moving. Yeah, thank you. I was I was proud of I was proud of that line and, and connecting the the archive and the, the archive I was sitting outside of and and I mean it 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 struck me in that moment because Widener is like the historic Harvard Library. It's massive. It's the biggest library I'd ever seen up until that point, and and it just was like in my face. Like if if Harvard doesn't have resources for mm-hmm. me and my community. I mean, it's the world's fifth largest religion. Uh, mm-hmm. There are nearly 30 million Sikhs around the world. And like, nobody knows us. Nobody sees us. And, and, and what's, I mean, what, what I think is especially remarkable about this experience of being so visible physically, but invisible culturally is that this was not the first time it happened, right? Like I remember as a kid going to my librarian and asking her, Hey, where, where are the books with the characters that look like the people in my family? And she said, I, there, there aren't any because they're not relatable. Right. Like, and then I'm, mm-hmm. I'm looking at writing this book that that's coming out now. And uh, I talked to, to potential agents and editors uh, just, just sort of feeling it out. And they're like, you know what, there's not really a market for, for stories like yours. And it's it's just over and over again in my experience um, that we are uh, left out, overlooked, rendered invisible, and and the feeling that in in the in the spaces where I have shown up um, and I have actually made relationships with people, like where where we actually know one another. I know that there are people who care that there are people who do care about me as a person and do have interest and curiosity about where I come from. And so it's been, it's been a really interesting journey for me uh, to, to recognize that truth, to have confidence in the reality that I know um, that we do belong uh, and that we can create a space for ourselves. and, And it just requires a combination of, effort and fortune and finding the right allies and, and people who understand the value uh, and, and piece it all together to create a career. So I, yeah, there, there is something really, um, I mean, meaningful in that moment for me uh, that, that, that had a big impact uh, on my, on my own thinking and my journey, uh, but also a, a reminder of the, the regular moments, right. The daily moments where this, feeling was reinforced to me and really made, really made real. Mm, yeah, that's great. Um, so we always end the podcast by asking our guest for a yes and story. So in the parlance of improvisation, you get nowhere by saying no, you don't really get that far by saying yes. You say yes. And uh, you affirm and contribute in order to explore and heighten. Uh, do you have a yes and story for us? 
Yeah, you know, the, the one that I was thinking about, which which was a major moment in my life and, and, and life, the, the one that comes to mind, which was a major moment in my life and also in my professional journey, uh, was in 2012. Um, there's a there's a massacre of six in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, yeah. uh, by white supremacists. And, um, in that, in that moment, um, immediately, I mean, I, I didn't know what to do, uh, to help my community. I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to support, but also at that time I was deathly afraid of public speaking. And, mm. and I'd written an article that in, in response to the massacre, I was writing for the Huffington post at the time. Um, and, and I got a call that uh, Amy Goodman from Democracy Now wanted to interview me. And I was deathly afraid. I, I can't even describe, like I didn't talk in my classes in high school and college and grad school growing up. Like I was, I was so self-conscious about public speaking and, um, and I ended up calling my editor. It, it wasn't an immediate yes sound, but I called my editor at the Huffington Post, Paul Rauschenbusch and said, Hey, what do I do about this? Like, I, I don't know what to say. I'm not the right person. I've never done this before. Um, and, and he was saying, you know what, there's, 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 there's a real opportunity for you here and for your community. And he gave me a little bit of coaching. So it was a, it was a very reluctant <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, um, but it, it created an entirely new experience for me. I mean, the, the short way of saying it was like, it was fine. Like I, I didn't die. And, 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 um, and, and it was a, it was a value add for, for our community and telling our stories. Uh, and I, and I learned to realize over time of, of doing this, um, that I actually did like it and did have something uh, of value to offer in spaces like this. And so there, there was a big shift for me, uh, personally in my own confidence, uh, professionally in my willingness to engage. And now, and now I can, hang out with someone like you and do an interview and not, not, not feel terrible about myself. So it was, a, it was a really pivotal moment for me growing up. Well, it's a practice, right? I mean, like anything. And, and we, we, we tend to elevate various things in our lives and, and phobias or whatever, and, and not realize like, Oh, if I just practice this thing, I might get decent at it. Um, not everyone is going to be a first class orator, uh, but you can, learn to have a better conversation that that's you can practice as a way to have a better conversation yeah yeah that's definitely true and i and i've i've experienced that and, and i've been grateful for that um lesson over time and I, I think the other the other aspect of it for me was um self-consciousness is often an overstatement of how much people are paying attention to you right yeah. like part, part of what i've learned is uh, no one, no one cares as much about yourself as you do. And so exactly. to, to let go of some of that fear, uh, is actually uh, a way to, to increase some of your own humility. Uh, right. So I, I've, I've loved that element of it as well. Uh, the book is called the light we give how sick wisdom can transform your life. Simranjit Singh. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Of course. Of course. This was a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Getting to Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com. Walking the 
recevoir. 